Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes depictions of drug use, domestic violence, mental illness, homophobia, suicidal ideation, and suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. If you or someone you love is struggling with suicidal thoughts or the impulse to self-harm, please seek help. The United States National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. There is nothing supernatural about your pain. Sasha hated walking. She hated hills. She hated walking on hills. But Sam was cute and liked hiking. So Sasha liked hiking. For appearance's sake. Even if the appearance left her sweaty and flushed. They hiked through Griffith Park and up into the hills, chasing the white letters that stood far above the early morning light. The massive things mocked Sasha for failing to check if her eyeliner was waterproof every time she raised her eyes to look at them. She kept her head on a swivel, remembering a Los Angeles Times article about the area's mountain lion, but the sweat on her brow and back made concentrating difficult. She looked up toward the letters again, only to notice something strange. There was a woman standing on the H. Her dress was calf-length, blowing in a breeze Sasha could not feel. She was suddenly struck by the smell of gardenias in the air, like her mother's backyard in the spring. Unease spread up Sasha's spine. She knew that look, that lonesome look. She'd been there herself. Before she could cry out, the woman jumped, falling through midair, in what felt like both an eternity and an instant. Sasha couldn't tear her eyes away as the poor woman careened toward the ground. But as Sasha braced for the sickening crunch, the woman disappeared into thin air. Welcome to Haunted Places, a podcast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Hollywood sign a real estate advertisement that's now one of the most iconic sites in Los Angeles, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. The Hollywood sign used to read Hollywood Land. Many people know this thanks to a certain mid-2000s neo-noir where Ben Affleck plays Superman rather than Batman but the origins of the sign itself are more obscure. No one can seem to agree on who came up with the idea to erect a 50-foot-tall lighted sign on the side of Mount Lee in the Santa Monica Mountains. We do know that the sign was constructed as an advertisement for a luxury real estate subdivision in 1923. The Hollywood land development stood at the end of Beechwood Canyon in the shadow of Mount Lee. It initially offered four different architectural styles, 
Tudor, French Normandy, Mediterranean, and Spanish. This uniformity didn't last, and the Hollywood Hills is now one of the most eclectic neighborhoods in Los Angeles. The large billboard cost $21,000 to construct, which is almost $320,000 in 2020 dollars. The site was remote, which severely complicated construction. The builders were able to carve out a crude path for a tractor to pull the poles and panels up the hillside, but the last 75 yards had to be traversed by mules. The original sign was only meant to stand for about 18 months, but its eye-catching appearance soon established the sign as a beacon for the budding film industry. At full power, the billboard boasted over 3,700 light bulbs that lit up holly, wood, and land in succession before shining as a whole. But it would be that same iconic role that would make it the setting for both a public and private tragedy. Peg told her aunt and uncle that she was going to the drugstore, but she wasn't. Instead, she was making her way up Mount Lee, her supposedly practical heels sliding on the loose gravel in the moonlight. She told herself she only wanted to see the view, that she could talk herself out of it when she looked over Los Angeles, that she would find the hope that had sustained her through the long hours, insecurities, and hard decisions of the last year. She was lying. She'd done this to herself, all of it. She'd alienated the world outside of Hollywood, but no one wanted her here either. Mr. Selznick certainly didn't. He liked her work. He'd said so. It was just that his hands were tied by the Hayes Code. She told her aunt that she believed him when he said it. But she didn't. She'd been evicted from her apartment and had to live with her aunt and uncle, who meant well but interpreted every sigh from her as a sign of terminal melancholy. She always told them that she was all right, that she was full of hope, that she trusted her abilities as an actress. In a way, she did. Peg played her role perfectly, reassuring them that she wasn't like her tragic and troubled mother, abandoning her family for the prison of her own mind. She was lying. Peg hadn't been quite comfortable in her first real film role, she played the naive ingenue preyed upon by the more experienced doctor's wife. The plot would carry her character, Hazel, to murder and madness. These women were nothing like the witty, kind lady she met in Marlena Dietrich's sewing circle. But she played the truth she could find, which she told herself was enough. She told herself she believed it, that her acting teachers, her aunt, her uncle were all right. There were no small roles, only small actors. That the truth was something you could find anywhere, even when you stood in darkness. But they were wrong. It was melodrama, the whole thing. The movie, her life, her failings. Broad tragedy, chintz and pulp. The kind that audiences loved to consume, but never retained. It wasn't Shakespeare. It wasn't even Kaufman. There was no wit, no irony, no indication that she or Hazel knew she was the butt of the joke. She told herself that in time, she wouldn't think about all those people sitting in the dark laughing at her. She told herself she'd stop drinking to forget. She was lying. 
She reached the sign, massive and shining, blinking brighter than the stars in the night. Hollywood Land. Then, the whole thing all at once. It was glamorous and hopeful, the very picture of Tinseltown promise. Peg told herself that she could be that way again if she tried. But she couldn't. She ascended the metal ladder on shaky legs, her heels clanging on every rung. The 50 feet took less time to traverse than she expected in her altered state. And soon she found herself standing on the precipice of the great sign. The city of Los Angeles spread out below her, like a sea of blinking stars. It was so beautiful from up here, peaceful, even kind. Not the sort of place that chewed you up and spat you out. The type of place that figured out exactly what was wrong with you and never let you forget it. A place where you walked into additioned rooms to find a gaggle of doubles staring back at you. They always looked just like her, and yet not like her at all. Each and every one was prettier, smarter, more seductive, more stable. That was always where she failed. But this is where her aunt and uncle made their home. Somewhere among the stars below was their place, where her failings might be forgiven, even healed, in time. Peg told herself she had people who loved her, hope for the future, a reason to live. She told herself she would only take a few more breaths until she turned around and climbed down, that she only wanted to take in the view. She was lying. Lillian Millicent Peg Entwistle was raised by her father, Robert Entwistle, in West Kensington, London. She generally told people that her mother died when she was young, but Entwistle family documents cast some doubt on this claim. These records indicate that her father wrote in his will that he did not want his daughter to fall into the custody of her birth mother. There are no further accounts of her mother. But Entwistle's biographers suggest that her erasure from the narrative may suggest she had some form of mental illness. Robert Entwistle was killed in a hit-and-run in 1922, when Peg was 14. She and her younger brothers were taken in by their aunt and uncle, Charles and Jane Entwistle, and emigrated to Hollywood to live with them. Charles was the manager of successful stage actor Walter Hampton, and both he and his wife believed young Peg had talent. Hampton put Peg in his production of Hamlet, and she subsequently won a role in a Henrik Ibsen play on Broadway when she was 17. She went on to perform alongside titans of the New York theater world, but her career stalled in 1927. She'd fallen in love with another actor, Robert Keith, and their whirlwind affair led to a marriage that same year. Keith was abusive, and she would later discover that he'd been married once before and had a six-year-old son, she divorced him two years later, citing both cruelty and fraud, and returned to the stage. It was two years before she hit trouble again. She'd agreed to do a season of summer repertory theater in Maine when she was offered a role in a play in Los Angeles opposite Humphrey Bogart. She dropped out to pursue the Bogart production, only to drop that because she was offered a role in an RKO psychological thriller called 13 Women. 13 Women should have made a splash. It is remembered today as one of Hollywood's first women-led ensemble films, 
and is often described as a forerunner to the slasher genre. The plot focuses on a group of sorority sisters who are led to their deaths by a mixed-race woman they drove out of school. Peg played a character called Hazel, who carried on an affair with a woman named Martha before losing touch with reality and killing her husband, fulfilling her former classmate's evil plot. But as 13 women went into post, the motion picture production code was coming into effect, also known as the Hayes Code. These guidelines were meant to cleanse libertine Hollywood of its boundary-pushing elements. The Hayes Code outlawed depictions of drug use, profanity, interracial relationships, and most importantly for 13 women, what the code liked to call sexual perversion. This blanket term covered open-mouth kissing, men and women sharing beds, and queer and gender non-conforming identities. The censors told RKO that the romantic relationship between the two women needed to go. 14 minutes were cut from the final print, and Meg's total runtime in the film ended up being a rushed and nearly nonsensical six and a half minutes, despite her being one of the title characters. Peg was blacklisted by the theater community for reneging on her contracts, and her film career failed to pick up steam. She was evicted from her apartment and moved in with her aunt and uncle in Beechwood Canyon, just below the Hollywoodland sign. On September 16, 1932, Peg got drunk and told Charles and Jane she was going to the drugstore. Instead, she hiked up the hill, climbed a ladder at the back of the sign's H, and leapt to her death. Two days later, a hiker found a woman's shoe and a suicide note. It read, I'm afraid I'm a coward. I'm so sorry for everything. If I had done this a long time ago, it would have saved a lot of pain. Peg's body was found shortly after. She was 24 years old. Up next, Peg makes her return to the spotlight. Now back to the story. Peg Entwistle's death received national news coverage, but it was more a result of her methods than her memory. Her legacy was her choice of location, and her tale was presented as yet another sensationalized account of Hollywood tragedy. Suicide laid to film jinx, the Los Angeles Times wrote. The ghost story surrounding the sign didn't appear until the mid-1940s, when a mysterious incident suggested that Peg was ready for her close-up once again. It wasn't often that a man found a job that kept him in shape. Albie considered himself lucky to be helping with the magic of the city while keeping himself limber. They may have curtailed the lights after a decade of him shimming across pipes to replace the bulbs, but they left the ladder up. Albie still liked to climb it every chance he got. From up there, the world was in the palm of your hand. He told the ladies that his fine physique came from his job guarding the gate to Hollywoodland. But he tried to leave out the boring stuff, like the small shed where he kept his lunch pail. Up there in the heavens, there was no one but God to watch you. And that was just how Albie liked it. When he needed a pick-me-up, he'd pull out his silver flask and take a draft of some liquid courage. It cut through the boredom, making his often repetitive job a little more of a challenge. 
he'd have to focus more to walk the property correctly, and getting on a ladder while drunk was a skill that had taken him time to learn. He had to entertain himself somehow. On nights like these, when the Santa Ana winds were pounding against the small shack, Albie found himself turning to his flask more often than not. It helped keep the chills at bay. He leaned back in the chair he'd built and looked out at the ladders holding up the Hollywoodland sign. The old dame had been through quite a few changes in the decade he'd been taking care of her. Too many for his taste, but he wouldn't let anyone touch her as long as he was fit enough to do the job. He was just getting to his lunch pail to enjoy a midnight nip when he saw a flash of motion by the sign. A gold dress glittered against the metal rungs of the ladder, dazzling the gloom with the reflected lights of the city. The woman in it wasn't half bad either. He dealt with this sometimes, people sneaking up to enjoy the view. He didn't mind when the trespassers looked this good. Albie took one more swig from his flask and then headed outside to tell the woman she needed to leave. She paused on the ladder when she heard him approach. Albie gave himself permission to take one more look at her before he explained that the sign was off-limits to the public. Her smile was brighter than the lights had ever been. She readjusted her position on the ladder, climbing down without looking, her eyes fixed on his. He couldn't look away. His body swayed slightly, and he couldn't tell if it was the drink or the dame. She'd reached the last few rungs when she let go, trusting him to catch her. He managed it with surprising grace, and she collapsed into his arms, looking up at him with dreamy eyes. Albie was speechless. She kissed him on the cheek and thanked him for letting her take in the view. He blushed, staring out that he was happy to help. Her fingernails dug into the back of his neck. He liked that she was pulling him closer to her. The woman told him that she'd taken a taxi to the canyon and would be so grateful if he would give her a ride back. Albie was more than happy to oblige. He couldn't imagine how difficult the hike must have been in those heels. Yet, in spite of this, she looked composed and immaculate. Sometimes, women were magic. They walked in silence. He wiped sweat from the back of his neck. It was heavier than it should have been. He held his fingers up to the light, turning them slightly to see small dots of blood clinging to his skin. As they moved higher up the hill toward Albie's car, he pulled back a few steps to watch her legs move. The lights of the city shone through them with every other step. He took another swig from his flask. Her legs stopped moving. Albie looked up. She turned her head back to look at him, or at least he thought she had. Her head looked like she was facing him, but the rest of her body was turned away at an impossible and unnerving angle. He rubbed at his eyes. She was smiling, her curls falling just above her shoulders as she looked over at him. All was normal again. She laughed and told him to keep his eyes up top. Her eyes stayed glued to his as she walked forward. He'd follow her to hell and back if he could spend one night in her arms. She stopped at his car, her fingers trailing over the driver's side handle. For a moment, it looked as if her hands passed through the door. But in the next instant, they were just lightly resting on the handle. 
Never the gentleman, he rushed forward to open the door for her and asked her to slide on over to the passenger seat. She stayed where she was, insisting that he wasn't sober enough to drive. Alby scoffed. He had a high tolerance. They'd be fine. Her place was beside him, not at the wheel. Her eyes hardened, but she acquiesced. Alby followed suit, struggling to fit the key into the ignition. She was sitting against the window, her hands clasped in her lap. But he swore he could still feel her fingernails clawing into his neck. The car roared to life and Albie shifted gears. The road was swinging back and forth in front of him, like the sign in the wind. He didn't remember it being this shaky when he drove up. Albie had to spin the wheel hard to make it, the car tilting slightly off the ground. It bounced as it made contact with the road again. The glittering woman laughed. Albie kept the wheel slightly turned as they zoomed down the winding road. He pressed his foot against the gas, wanting to make the woman laugh again. She clawed into his neck. He took his eyes off the road to look at her. She hadn't moved. He took a hand off the wheel to rub at his neck, slowly bringing his eyes back to the road. A man was stumbling in the middle of the road. A man who looked exactly like him. Albie swerved. The car tipped perilously close to the edge of the canyon. His wheels scraped against dirt and gravel as he stomped on the brake with all his might. All of Los Angeles glittered down below him, as if it had its own pull beyond the normal force of gravity. Yet somehow, the car eased to a stop. Albie took a shuddering breath. Nails dug into his neck again. He yelled at the woman to cut it out. She stayed silent, smiling, as if he hadn't spoken at all. He was about to give her a piece of his mind when he caught movement in the rearview mirror. The man who wasn't him was lying in the center of the road behind him, body broken and mangled. But Albie didn't hit the drunk. He was sure of it. The man began to pick himself off the road, bones jutting out at odd angles, cracking and creaking as he moved. Not Albie shuffled toward the car, arms waving slowly over his head. Albie didn't want to know what would happen when the doppelganger reached him. He threw the car into reverse and pressed hard against the accelerator. The wheels spun against the gravel for a moment, before breaking loose. He turned the steering wheel as hard as he could. The woman let out a yelp of surprise as he took hairpin turns trying to outrun the stumbling monster behind them. The letters he spent his life protecting came back into view. A staggering amount of pressure came from the back of his neck. The road blurred before him. Next to him, sharp peals of laughter rang out. He turned to look at the woman, but she wasn't there anymore. The broken version of himself was sitting next to him. It reached for the wheel. Albie instinctively covered his head with his hands. The car turned sharply. The giant H of the Hollywoodland sign barreled toward them. Albie put his hands on the wheel and tried to press on the brakes. It was too late. They crashed through the display, and suddenly, the glistening landscape of Los Angeles was rising up to meet him. Buildings and mountains surged forward as the car fell. 
and fell. Sweet, taunting laughter filled his ears, drowning out everything else as the vehicle tumbled, sliding to a stop against a slight rise in the hillside. Battered but alive, Alby staggered out of the now-empty car. He looked down at the broken H further down the mountain, and then up at the remains of the sign. The woman was standing on air, shimmering where the top of the H used to be. She waved to him. Then she vanished, leaving only the stars behind her. The H in the Hollywoodland sign toppled down the hillside in 1944. If Hollywood folklore is to be believed, the sign's caretaker, a German immigrant named Albert Cota, was the cause. He was driving drunk on his way back to the maintenance shack beside the sign, but he lost control of his car and careened down the hillside to his death, knocking the H over in the process. The Hollywood Sign Trust contends that the story is nothing more than a Tinseltown urban legend, and historical records indicate that Kota lived long after his job as the caretaker of the sign ended. The sign was meant to be temporary, and it was expensive to maintain as a result. The real estate syndicate who owned the Hollywood land development dissolved in 1933. The land's new owners, the M.H. Sherman Company, stopped lighting the sign at night and abandoned all attempts at upkeep shortly after acquiring it. By 1944, the elements had weakened the sign supports, and a high wind might have been enough to send the H sliding down the hill. But the Santa Ana winds can't explain the sightings of a disoriented woman in a 1930s frock along the Griffith Park trails, especially on foggy nights. Her presence is usually preceded by the strong smell of gardenias, which was said to be Peg and Twistle's favorite perfume. Coming up, the restoration of the Hollywood sign brings out a whole new side of its resident spirit. Now back to the story. The Hollywood sign's H was actually the fourth letter to have fallen from its frame between 1936 and 1944. The M.H. Sherman Company always managed to scrape together funds to repair the damage, but the sign's transformation into Hollywood land was the last straw. They donated Hollywood Land's remaining undeveloped acreage to the city of Los Angeles, and it was integrated into Griffith Park in 1945. But the former advertisement continued to be a money pit. The broken H lay abandoned on the hillside below the sign well into the 1940s. The Los Angeles Recreation and Parks Commission advocated for tearing down the sign entirely, but the residents of Hollywood protested. Eventually, it was agreed that the city would restore the H if they could reduce the cost of upkeep. The land was removed, and the Hollywood sign took on the iconic appearance it has today. But the city of Los Angeles itself fell into disrepair in the 1960s. Film production moved to the less cramped San Fernando Valley, and those who could afford to followed. Hollywood was taken over by adult theaters and stores, the sign had become racked by wood rot in a not-so-subtle metaphor for the city's general decline. Enough money was raised in 1973 to give the sign a cosmetic repair, but by 1978, rot and termite infestation threatened to send the whole thing tumbling down the hill. 
The Hollywood Chamber of Commerce began a Save the Sign campaign. Hugh Hefner threw several parties to support the effort, attracting celebrity donors such as Alice Cooper, who donated $27,700 to rebuild the third O in honor of Groucho Marx. The old sign was said to be demolished on August 9, 1978, to make room for a new one reinforced with steel. A new era for the sign was beginning, but that didn't matter to Peg. Amir and Tal wandered the strip for hours before they'd heard the news. Their idol, Alice Cooper, was investing in Hollywood, specifically the giant sign that spelled Hollywood, and occasionally Hollywood or Hollyweed. If the legend himself thought that a sign was worth saving, maybe the two of them should check it out before it got a facelift. Like smoking at a graveyard, but with hiking. They left the crowd-clogged streets and neon signs behind, hopping on a bus that would drop them off on the path below. They hopped out the back doors and jogged up toward the path, relying on the moon's glow and the light pollution from the valley below. Amir had trouble keeping up. Tal joked that if he'd laid off the weed for a couple of months, he might be in better shape. They stared at each other for a second before collapsing into a fit of giggles. They couldn't ignore the sign's mandate. Holly weed forever. Tal kept his head up, following the trail toward the sign. He felt the crunch of an insect's carapace breaking underneath his feet. He stopped, rubbing his shoe against the ground to get whatever goo that was left off of it. He wasn't surprised. Empty cups and candy wrappers littered the overgrown grass. It was roach heaven. Amir bumped into him. Tal turned around to let him have it, but his friend wasn't looking at him. Amir was looking up toward the sign. A Faye Dunaway look-alike was standing on the top of one of the crumbling O's, her body swaying back and forth in the wind. Amir asked Tal if he thought the girl was going to jump. Tal couldn't remember what he'd taken today, but he still wasn't entirely convinced that she was real. She stood too perfectly, as if daring the elements to throw her back down to earth. He shrugged instead of answering, but he picked up the pace, wanting to prove to himself that it was just the weed or the mushrooms or the acid talking. The woman grew taller as they got closer to the sign. Maybe it was the perspective, but she looked nearly as tall as the letters themselves, a vengeful angel ready to destroy the sin that seeped through Los Angeles. He smirked as they got closer to the rusty sign, Maybe she just needed a better look at the devils that roamed freely here. The angel had returned to her normal size, still standing in a gauzy white dress. He called out to her, but she didn't answer. She kept her eyes forward, staring off into the dark sky. Tal jogged the last hundred feet or so. Maybe she was some sort of statue. Amir waved at the woman and asked her to come down. Tal hit him upside the head, saying that that was the boring way to do things. He didn't give Amir time to ask what was the more exciting way before he began climbing the exposed wooden structure of the surrounding O. It bent slightly under his weight. This thing had been standing for nearly 50 years. It could handle him. In the semi-darkness, the wood seemed to shift where he touched it, 
small white bugs swarming his fingers. He pulled his hand away to shake them off. The slats underneath his feet bent further. Tal put his hand back on the wood and pulled himself up slowly. He'd just have to learn to deal with the bugs. They kept coming, crawling out of the wood to land on top of him. He pulled himself up to the next section of the grid. His leg went straight through a piece of wood. Amir giggled to himself, and Tal felt the urge to go back down and punch his friend. Sure, he was showboating a little by climbing up here, but it wasn't an easy climb. On top of the bugs, splinters were digging into his leg now, and he was struggling to keep his grip tight on the grid. Tal swung a leg around wildly, kicking off the pieces of wood that were trying to claw their way into him. Amir covered his head, yelling at Tal to cut it out. He found his footing slowly, searching for the next beam that could hold his weight. Once he felt secure, he kept climbing. He was almost there. He placed his hands on the edge of the grid and pulled himself up, letting his legs dangle over the rim. As he suspected, the woman was nowhere to be found. He introduced himself to the air as theatrically as he could, waiting for Amir to laugh down below. But all he heard was the wind. He looked over the edge to see Amir still staring up at him, gawking. Tal sighed. What was the point of his antics if his audience wasn't even paying attention? He felt the solid weight of a hand on his shoulder. It was the woman. She turned toward him with a soft smile and said her name was Peg. The wind swirled her dress around her ankles. Tal introduced himself again. She laughed, saying she had heard him the first time. He asked her what she was doing up here. She whispered something, but he couldn't hear it. He asked her to speak up. She told him that she lost her shoe. His eyes looked down toward her feet. Sure enough, she was missing a shoe. A small silver strap went across her other ankle. A pretty but old style. The kind of thing he'd seen in pictures of his grandma. Amir called out to the two of them from below, saying he thought he saw it. He dashed off into the underbrush, chasing a faint glint in the bushes. Tal was wondering how Amir had heard them when he realized he was alone with Peg. Grateful for the opportunity, he tried to make small talk, asking her how her shoe came off. This wasn't exactly the kind of thing you could climb barefoot. She told him that she'd jumped. He laughed. She didn't. Tal was confused. There was no way she could have jumped from here without breaking a leg at the very least. She sniffled. He immediately backpedaled. He didn't mean to upset her. He just wanted to hear the truth. She told him that it was God's honest truth, her lips set in a pout. He should try it if he didn't believe her. He rose to his feet. Amir was nowhere to be seen. Tal felt himself moving toward the edge. He gave her another look. She only answered with a steely challenge. Tal studied her for a moment, doing his best to steady himself in a sea of glowing color and sounds as Los Angeles sparkled below him. The city that stayed up all night and went to brunch at noon. He looked at the ground, realizing what he would have to do if he wanted to prove his point. He had done a lot of stupid things while high in his time, 
and he was beginning to get the feeling that this would top them all. The ground was moving in and out of focus, like Wiley E. Coyote's view in a Roadrunner cartoon. It was too far down. He couldn't go through with it. He told her that she was a very pretty hallucination, but he needed to get back to his friend before he fell down the hill looking for her shoe. He backed himself onto the frame and started to climb back down. The termites seemed even more annoyed than they'd been on his way up. He found his grip slipping as he shook the bugs from his hands. He was nearing the bottom when he lost his footing entirely, falling ten feet into the scrub below. His ankles rolled as he hit the ground. It hadn't been worth it. Next time, he would try to visualize hot babes at a reasonable elevation. Amir came up to him, slowly. His face was frozen in an expression of shock. Tell asked what was the matter. Amir held up one shiny shoe in his hand. Tell cocked his head, confused. Peg had told them she lost a shoe. Amir held up his other hand. Tal had to squint to read the faded handwriting in the dim light. But the intention was clear. A suicide note. Signed, P.E. He sighed, realizing he owed her an apology. She had said that she jumped. The Griffith Park trails that lead up to the Hollywood sign officially close at sunset, but that hasn't prevented pranksters from making temporary alterations to the sign overnight. The most well-known is perhaps the sign's transformation to Hollyweed in 1976 to celebrate California's new relaxed marijuana law. But other examples include Hollywood to celebrate Pope John Paul II's 1987 visit to Los Angeles and Oil War in 1990 to criticize the Gulf War. There's a security guard posted at the Hollywood sign now. Over more than 13 cameras are pointed at it at every moment, including motion sensors and infrared filters that are constantly monitored by the Los Angeles Police Department. The era of pranks is over, though a group of marijuana enthusiasts did manage to restore the sign to its Hollyweed appearance on New Year's Day 2017 to celebrate the legalization of recreational cannabis that came into effect that day. The sign is peaceful now, lit only by the ambient light of Los Angeles below. You can ascend any one of the three trails through Griffith Park and into the hills, emerging below, behind, or above the great Tinseltown landmark, depending on your chosen route. One might think that Peg is relegated to a ghost story, a historical footnote, the girl who jumped from the Hollywood sign. As the New York Times wrote at the time, police found yesterday at the foot of a gigantic electric letter H, evidence of a movie land tragedy, the bruised body of a girl who failed. But on September 16, 2014, the citizens of Beechwood Canyon decided to honor her. They came together at Beechwood Village, not too far from the bungalow she shared with her family. They held raffles and had snacks. They sat outside and watched 13 women. The film is cut to shreds, but she's there, arm in arm with the woman who might have been Martha. They donated the proceeds to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, in Peg's name. 
That night, the scent of gardenias floated on the breeze. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Rache, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>